Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 6, 2017, and my guest is author, futurist, publisher, Silicon Valley guru, Tim O'Reilly, founder of O'Reilly Media. Our subject for today is his new book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Tim, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks very much for having me, Russ. Now, your book is, is quite um, – it's quite amazing. It's part memoir, part history of technology. Uh, there's also some preaching uh, about how we might mold the future. And to start with, I want to talk about how much your book reminds us and makes us pay attention to how much and how fast the world has changed in in recent years. Here's a quote uh, from the book where you talk about going back, way back to the past, to 1998. And 1998, it's hard to remember uh, it's less than 20 years ago. So here's the quote. Uh, of course, some of my listeners won't uh, – this is not the quote yet. Some of my listeners won't appreciate this quote because they're 19. But for those of you who are who lived through 1998, it will remind you of just how much things have changed. Here's the quote now. Software was distributed in shrink-wrapped boxes with new releases coming at best annually, often every two or three years. Only 42% of U.S. households had a personal computer versus the 80% who own a smartphone today. Only 20% of the U.S. population had a mobile phone of any kind. The Internet was exciting investors, but it was still tiny, with only 147 million users worldwide versus 3.4 billion today. More than half of all U.S. Internet users had access through AOL, America Online. Amazon and eBay had been launched three years earlier, but Google was only just founded in September of that year. Less than 20, end of quote, less than 20 years into this revolution, the speed of it is really rather extraordinary. Yeah, you know, the thing that's interesting is the speed is extraordinary, but there's a really interesting economics lesson in it also, which is that new technologies typically take 20, 30, 40 years to really affect the economy and productivity. You know, Amazon has been around now for, you know, 22 years. And it's really the the major impacts on retail beyond, uh, uh, you know, book selling are really only starting to be felt now. And we're only starting to see the articles that say, oh, maybe – you know, it isn't going to be the death of retail. It's just different because, you know, there's starting to be articles about uh, Amazon actually hiring more workers or, or just e-commerce in general leading to different jobs rather than, well, yes, people standing in stores are, are being put out of work. But there's actually kind of amazing numbers of jobs being created in warehouses, in delivery, uh, and this amazing capability that we didn't have where you can – say, oh, I need something, and have it show up, uh, sometimes even the same day. And that, to me, is this uh, parable that we also saw in the Industrial Revolution and that we forget in the early stages of a new 
you know, economic revolution. And, and that is that technology lets you do more. And, uh, you know, so going back to, I, I always like to think about the Luddite rebellion and imagine that, well, you know, we, we, we start using these machine looms and they said, well, great. Now we can make everybody their one suit of homespun very, very quickly. Yeah. And yeah, instead, no, it was all of a sudden, you know, people could have more clothes. Fashion became uh, something that wasn't just for the very, very rich. Uh, ordinary people were able to change and update their clothes. And now, of course, you know, clothes are a commodity and disposable. And so part of the, the question that I ask in my book, which is, is really is meditation, mostly about Silicon Valley technologies, but more broadly about technology as a whole, is what do we have to do differently to accelerate the progress towards uh, making, you know, the, 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 the the wins that we get from technology come more quickly and get out of the mindset that says, oh, this technology is going to destroy jobs because, yes, it may well do that. And instead start asking, what new jobs will it create? How, what things were previously impossible that it will let us do? You know, back, back to the early Industrial Revolution, they had no idea that we would fly through the air, that we would – you know, be able to, to, you know, move goods all around the world incredibly cheaply, that we would build a tunnel under, under the you know, English Channel, that we would, uh, you know, build skyscrapers half a mile high. None of that was in the imagination. And now here we are with this enormous failure of imagination uh, about what might the cognitive technologies of AI and what's happening on the Internet make possible in the way of a future economy. And so I don't have answers for that, but I do know that there are certain design patterns that you see in the great companies of how they actually drive forward. And, and one of those things is they don't simply try to cut costs. They don't see technology as simply labor saving. They see technology as a way to do more. And I, part of my call to action in the book is let's get out of this financial market driven uh, this is all about, you know, improving, you know, uh, you know, cost structures and, and making companies more profitable. So their stock prices go up and instead say, what problems can we solve now? Well, one of the things your book reminds us of is the how much of our world that we enjoy today that's information based or digital is was created by passionate people Um passionate about a solution, passionate about a technique, passionate about creating a tool. I want to go back to something you – I think you mentioned this twice in the book, and it, it, it grabbed my attention because I, I've mentioned it before on the program that when Amazon first started, I was very uneasy entering my credit card into a open uh, space on my computer thinking, you know, this could be bad. This could end up really badly, and I was – I was talking to the uh, CEO at the time, and I remember him saying, when I said, I, he said he ordered a lot of books on Amazon, and I said, uh, you do? You give them their credit card? He said, sure. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe it's all right. And I went and did it, and I found out I could get all these extraordinary books. But I wanted to just raise the possibility, which you allude to in the book, that creating that confidence that you could give your credit card to a stranger, not literally to a stranger, to a, a website – 
entering it into a website's database was okay. That changed the world in, in ways that you can't begin to think about. It just an obvious thing that that does is it allows Uber to exist the way it does, which is extremely pleasant not to have to take your wallet out, worry whether you have enough money, go through that transaction, and just it's done. To have your credit card on, quote, on file is just a wonderful thing that, that now we just sort of take for granted. But it, it was not an obvious that it was going to happen. That's right. And, and I actually talk about that in, in the book, this idea that uh, often uh, these technological leaps forward uh, require thinking the unthinkable. And we don't even know in, uh, until, in retrospect, it just seems so obvious. Why would you not do this? But you know, the example I give regarding uh, Uber and Lyft is, uh, you know, we actually had connected taxi cabs. And what did we do? You know, we put a TV screen in the back and a credit card reader in the back. It was, uh, you know, just like the old days of movies, you know, where you, you, you filmed the stage play. And then bit by bit, they figured out, no, actually, you could move the camera around. You could do different takes and then stitch them together with editing. You know, and we invented movies. And, and the same way, you know, it took a while. And, and people can even have the idea but it doesn't all come together. So there's a guy named Sunil Paul who in 2000 uh, filed a patent for a whole set of ideas about how a smartphone could be used uh, to you know, coordinate cars. It could support you know, fractional car rental, all kinds of things that were really part of, of today's world. The thing that uh, that, that really illustrates is – is you can have an idea and it's just not the world's just not ready for it. There weren't enough smartphones and, and, uh, you know, Sunil kind of took a run at it and couldn't really make it work, couldn't get funding. And then later he came back to it, but by then it was too late. You know, Uber had, uh, had started. And it's also really interesting. If you look at the, at, at how, uh, that whole market evolved, uh, you know, that you see how markets, uh, kind of invent things t- together you know, the, the, the people get an individual piece uh, and then someone else gets a different piece and then they get assembled in, in magical new ways. So, you know, Travis uh, Kalanick and Garrett Kemp came up with that marvelous idea that a smartphone, and a, you know, in the hands of a driver and a smartphone in the, in the hands of a particular of a passenger could be used to coordinate pickup in real time. That was that magical user experience of Uber. But they thought about it for black cars. It was sort of a, uh, an app for rich people. And uh, it was Sunil who, who came in with a company called Sidecar, and he was rapidly copied by Lyft, uh, that kind of had this idea of ordinary people coming and doing this in their own cars. Uh, Uber didn't actually adopt that till a year later. And so, you know, then this market sort of exploded, but it was really these two streams of ideas that were both needed because, you know, um, you know, uh, John Zimmer and, and uh, Logan Green, the founders of Lyft, had previously been working on a, on a startup called Zimride, which was uh, inspired by the Jitneys in Zimbabwe. It wasn't actually named after John Zimmer, but after Zimbabwe, <laughs> uh, which was really for, and it was a web app for, you know, coordinating long range travel. And then when they saw Uber, they went, wow, you know, this would be a great uh, way to, you know, get to our vision of, of sort of a future transportation network that's a, a 21st century version of those jitneys that uh, supply public transportation in Zimbabwe. And so you see this sort of magic of somebody has an idea 
and then some it, it makes somebody else have a different idea and then there's this game of leapfrog and i watched this throughout my you know my career and and you know kind of back to, to credit cards on the internet um uh, you know you think of how long it's been you know it, it was it was uh you know what 20 years almost between uh amazon one click and uber's um you know, realization that you could do one click in the real world. Yeah. I mean, Apple was kind point. of pushing Apple pay, you know, which is like, wow, we'll just use your smartphone as a token instead of a credit card, as opposed to saying, no, we'll just store your credit card ID. And then, you know, we'll just, you know, the act of consuming the service will trigger payment automatically. So I, I made a list actually, uh, responding to your, what you wrote about Uber and, and Lyft. And you had a lot of interesting observations on them and we may come back to them but the the point i was thinking about to echo what you said a minute ago is let's let's make a list and of course this very partial list of what had to be in place for uber and lyft and others airbnb being another example for them to exist so lots of people with smartphones for sure you mentioned that uh people being able to pay for things with their phones so a credit card system that generated enough trust through experience and software that you could be comfortable that you wouldn't be constantly having your identity or money stolen. Uh, GPS location on your phone, which is crazy. I mean, that's amazing. Like We don't even think about that either, but that's an amazing thing. A little bit scary too, but also amazing. The underlying algorithm to align people with, with cars without having to have like a dispatcher figuring out oh, who's closest. I mean, that's just, that's a mind-blowing achievement. Uh, I assume. I, I assume some really thoughtful people did it. Uh, an interface on your phone to make that whole thing pretty straightforward, really shockingly straightforward. And then finally, and I, this may be as, as important as all the rest, a way to ensure trust without heavy top-down regulation or monitoring of drivers using the rating system of both customer and driver, which, as you point out, I think I think you say this. It came from eBay, which it just that's so fortuitous. It just all those things had to be there for this to happen. Nobody who did those individual things planned that it would lead to Uber. Uber's a fantastic and all these companies are fantastic examples of emergent phenomena that that couldn't be designed. Uh they could have been of course at an enormous cost, but they emerged through different pieces of design, but mainly pulling these different technologies and insights together. Yeah, there's one other uh, piece. I, I totally agree with that list, and it is astonishing when you you, you kind of look at the, the way these pieces gradually were accumulated until somebody could put them together in a novel way. And again, some of those, are, actually, you got to think about them. They really are being delivered as services. This is something I started talking about, you know, starting around 2000 was that the internet was becoming an operating system with services like location, like payment, like identity. And, and the applications like Lyft and Uber are examples of that in the real world. You know, that we now have this sensor infused world where things are connected to the internet, where there's, there's data services, you know, that are provided by third parties. So, you, you know, you don't have, you know, Uber doesn't build its own payment service. And you know, Lyft doesn't build its own payment service. This is just something that you can get from someone else. So that kind of comes back to this really interesting idea 
uh, in economics of why it takes you know, 30, 40 years for a new technology to really show up in the productivity statistics. Um, there's a wonderful book by an economist named James Besson. Former, called, uh, uh, former Econ Talk guest. Uh, we talked about that book. It's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. And, uh, you know, just this idea that you have to have, uh, you know, a, a lot of pieces come together. It wasn't just those weaving machines. He, he talks about the weavers in 1840s uh, Lowell. And, you know, you have to have a critical mass of people who have the skills to use the technology. You have to have people who can fix the technology, who can extend the technology. But I, I wanted to come back to this one thing that was missing from your list, which is that critical mass of buyers and sellers. Yep. And uh, it's interesting because the reason why Uber and Lyft, you know, are, are still losing money <laughs> is that they are competing very hard to get and maintain that critical mass. And I'm not sure, you know, it's sort of interesting because it's hard to say what would happen if they weren't spending all that money. You know, if, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, earlier waves of the Internet, uh, it, it, things kind of evolved at, at something of a natural pace. I mean, sure, Amazon raised a lot of money, uh, but, you know, Google grew pretty organically. Facebook grew pretty organically. Uh, and, and so the market just, uh, it wasn't force fed. And, you know, one of the things that I see that's really interesting in this ride sharing market is uh, th these companies are, are, are basically force feeding the development of the, uh, the labor ecosystem. And the thing that's sort of interesting about that is I wonder to what extent the, the, the large amounts of capital raised have actually led them to distort the natural economics of that market because, uh, you know, they basically have been trying to lower costs for consumers, subsidizing that with, with, you know, venture capital, but then they end up, the drivers don't up, end up making enough money. So they end up having to pay all kinds of incentives, which bonuses, you know, yeah. is, is the bonuses and, and that's very costly. And, you know, I do wonder if they shouldn't be, you know, paying effectively, you know, efficiency you know wages you know pay pay more for the drivers uh, so that they stick around they don't have to spend as much money on recruitment and uh, don't quite spend quite so much money on well we're just gonna you know uh, uh, try to kill the taxi cab companies by undercutting them on price and and let find the natural you know balance in that market it's hard to say though because it's also true that the immense amounts of capital that they've spent are really spent on educating people about this new possibility. Yeah, that's a and, great point. And a lot of people who say that these companies can never be profitable really don't understand that uh, you know, there will come a point that this is just the way you do it. And uh, this is the way transportation happens, and it becomes much more ubiquitous, which is what you know, they've been really pushing for. And at that point... Uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to understand to what extent the uh, the companies really find the right balance between the benefit to uh, uh, consumers and the benefit to the workers that they depend on. So there's there's a real interesting you know one of the books that influenced me a lot when I was um, uh, you know writing my book was a book called Who Gets What and Why by Alvin Roth. Mm -hmm. Another recon talk guest, by the way. Yeah, and 
you know, I was introduced to that book by by one of the economists at, at Uber, uh, Jonathan Hall. And uh, he said it was totally shaped. He was like, you've got to read this book. It totally shaped him. Like, hey. But it's really about this idea of, of you know, you, you need to build a critical mass of buyers and sellers. Yeah, it's about the, the challenge of matching in a thicker market is easier than in a so-called thinner market. Right. Well, you- and, and, yeah. And so it's really, it's, it's really, you know, this, it, it's so interesting because uh, as I wrote this book, I realized how much technology and the economy are becoming deeply, deeply, deeply intertwined. With, with our culture, with our habits, with our, I mean, I, you know, recently had Benedict Evans on, we're talking about autonomous cars and um, electric cars. And I said something like, oh, so when the autonomous car takes you to the grocery, and he said, do you think you'll go to the grocery? And I thought, well, actually, probably not. So many cultural experiences, habits, as you point out, years and it, it, it might take decades to change the way we think about how to use these tools we have. It's going to change so many, so many things about how we live, how we shop, how we interact with each other. Um, I think, you know, I think, for example, the autonomous car is going to change. It's going to change a lot more than what we think of as taxis, obviously, or our own driving. It's going to change everything, just the way the car changed everything relative to the to the horse. You make a great point, by the way, in the book uh, when you talk about the labor model of Uber and Lyft, you say uh, there are those who argue that Uber and Lyft are simply trying to avoid paying benefits by keeping their workers as independent contractors rather than as employees. It isn't that simple. Yes, it does save the money, but independent contractor status is also important to the scalability and flexibility of the model. And then you go on to make the following point, which I think is fantastic. Unlike taxis, which must be on the road full-time to earn enough to cover the driver's daily rental fee, the Uber and Lyft model allows many more drivers to work part-time and to take passenger requests simultaneously from both services, leading to an ebb and flow of supply that more naturally matches demand. More drivers means better availability for customers, shorter wait times, and far better geographic coverage. These companies are able to provide five-minute response time over a far larger geographical area than traditional tax and limousine companies. That's a great point. I've never seen it made before, and I just think, uh, again, the the creativity and the getting used to and the what's going on underneath is just so hard hard to know. And you know, you're worried about whether they pay enough, whether they should have lower turnover. You know, my first thought is, well, they'll figure that out. They have a pretty good incentive too, but they might not figure it out for a while. <laughs> it may take them. Their culture and CEO and leadership and management may struggle with those issues, uh, but I, I think they'll get the hang of it. And I think, um, as you say, I think it's the future, whether we like it or not. I well, like it. I like it. I think it's unbelievable. It's you know, it changed my life when I travel in so many pleasant ways. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that uh, is it, super important to remember or, or to understand. This is great uh, phrase from uh, that I learned from these consultants I worked with back in 2000 called uh, the Beams, and, and it was really they talked about business models uh, uh, as the, all of the way, the way that all of the parts of the business work together to create marketplace advantage and customer value. And it's so often you see people who uh, don't really understand how all of the parts of a business have to work together. And so, for example, taxi companies to say, well, we just have to have an app, you know, uh, you know, uh, not thinking that, you know, the app that lets you summon cars is, you know, 
is the magic. And that's, that's one small part of the magic because you do have to have that critical mass of drivers, right? If, if, you, if you're a taxi company and you basically say, well, we have enough taxis, you know, with our taxi licenses and this licensing regime uh, to meet uh, average demand, because if we, ha- we can't have enough to meet peak demand because they'll be idle most of the time, right? So they, they, they can't do it. You know, with with their model, can't do it. Just yeah, because that's the beauty of the model is that you have more drivers when you need them and fewer when you don't. And and so, um, you know, the the challenge then is if you realize that that's actually fundamental to the ability to deliver, you realize a couple of things. One is the huge challenge that the transition to autonomous vehicles provides uh, for companies like Uber and Lyft. You know, a lot of, of shallow analysis says, oh, well, they'll just get rid of all the costs of the drivers. Won't that be great? And I say, well, no, it means that they're going to have to have enough cars uh, to meet peak demand. Right. So so logically, uh, they're co- they're going to have those. those totally cars different. Yeah. All the time <laughs> because a lot less of the time unless they find other uses for them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and so you say, actually, they're going to have to feather in humans and autonomous and they're going to have to figure out how to balance, which, you know, do they take the best routes or the worst routes, the worst times, the best times the, you know, there's all kinds of interesting challenges there. And of course, probably the very best solution would be for Uber and Lyft to transition to a world like that of Airbnb, where other people provide the autonomous vehicles in the same way they do today, because that swarming marketplace model is in fact, uh, you know, the very center of their business model. It's a great point. I, yeah, I don't think Airbnb is going to move into their own hotel chains um, as a way to expand their business. They, they've, they've got a good thing going, uh, and that's the fact that we all have this – many of us have unused capacity. Right. Um, and so that's why I think what's going to happen – and again, the logic of this says to me that in autonomous vehicles, these companies shouldn't be saying, well, we're going to develop our own unless they feel like they can develop their own and then give it away in the way that, for example, uh, you know, Google said, well, we're going to do Android and then we're going to give it to all the phone manufacturers. So there's a Google friendly, uh, you know, phone operating system. They could say, yeah, we, we need to have a, an Uber or Lyft friendly autonomous vehicle uh, yeah. system. Well, they could go that way. It's going to be, uh, I think, yeah. I think we'll both see this in our, <laughs> we're going to find out if this one ends. It's going to be uh, probably, I hope mm-hmm. uh, I'm 62, but I think I will. Uh, I want to shift gears. I want to move to Amazon. We have a lot of interesting things to say about Amazon. Um, I, it, you mentioned it earlier I, about whether all this VC money, all this venture capital money is poured into ride sharing and before poured into Amazon. I always would say, well, this is great. I get cheap books and I'm going to keep buying them while these venture capitalists are paying. Um, and that, that really improved my life a lot. Uh, but I I think Amazon's interesting because I th- and you have some interesting observations on it. There's a temptation for most of us on the outside to see Amazon as just a big retailer that once sold books, but now they sell lots of other things. But you write the following about Jeff Bezos. You say how Jeff took the idea of Amazon as a platform out of the realm of software and into organizational design ought to be taught in every business school. Explain what you mean by that. Well. I think uh, there's a couple of things. First, the, the, the actual background. At some point, uh, Jeff realized that Amazon needed to become a platform. I had actually given a talk uh, about how Microsoft had beaten 
uh, a whole series of challengers from Lotus uh, all the way up through Netscape, uh, you know, in the, the PC market because they were a platform provider and they owned the platform. Explain, and, explain uh, what that means for – let's use Amazon as an example. What does it mean for Amazon to be a platform? Well, uh, literally, Amazon uh, decided at, at some point around 2003, 2004, they were going to take this big e-commerce application that they had built. And they were going to turn it into a set of services that would be used to compose the application. Like earlier, remember when I was talking about Uber and Lyft, I said, you know, they don't provide the payment. You know, you can get you can get payment services from Stripe or, uh, you know, uh, companies like that. Uh, You don't have to do it yourself. Well, Amazon basically said we're going to decompose our own application into a set of services so that when somebody wants to do computation, there'll be a computation service. When they want to do storage, there'll be a storage service. Uh, And then they basically turn the company inside out and they say, we're going to offer these services to the outside world. And as a result, they built this Amazon Web Services business, uh, which, you know, effectively is now, you know, $10, $15 billion business, you know, it's really established the whole new cloud computing market. And and really it was, it was because Jeff realized that if somebody else became the platform, that Amazon would be vulnerable in the same way that, you know, Lotus and WordPerfect and Netscape had been vulnerable to Microsoft, who owned not just applications like, you know, Microsoft Word and Excel uh, and Internet Explorer, but also owned the underlying operating system. And they could basically use that to make, uh, to privilege their own applications. And so, you know, Amazon has not used AWS to privilege their own applications, uh, but they did do this amazing thing where they built themselves into a, a, a sort of a platform that they could, you know, then deliver their application with, which improved their own services. Uh, but they opened it up to the world. So that was, that's part one. But the second part uh, that's behind that, that quote is that they realized ultimately that being an internet scale platform requires a different kind of internal company organization. Because you've decomposed your your massive application into a bunch of small services. And those services are managed and created by small teams. Amazon calls them two pizza teams. You know, that is a team that's small enough to be fed by two pizzas. And each team has some function that they are trying to optimize. And it's through, so effectively they made it, internal marketplace you know almost this this managed almost by the invisible hand you know i mean obviously there's there's a guiding uh, spirit where we're trying to do this big thing but how people do the pieces you know uh, is not really tightly specified uh, I, think, I think a very good book could be written about how large corporations have tried to introduce market like forces within their command and control Regimes. It's a fascinating example, this one. Yeah, absolutely. Amazon has really done a great job of it. The thing that we have to really understand is that today's companies are infused with the digital. You know, when you look at a company like Amazon or Google or Facebook, you know, it is their application. You know, one of the earliest insights I had about internet applications was that they still had people inside them. Uh, you know, this notion that you know, unlike 
uh, you know, a, a program like Microsoft Word, which is, as you, you, know, you quoted from me earlier, was shipped every two or three years on a, on a CD, you know, a, an application like Google is constantly updated. Literally, it's a set of business processes for ingesting, you know, the activity of billions of people in real time and, and then turn it into a, a unique work product, i.e. search, ads, whatever. Amazon ingesting this huge marketplace of products, continually updated, continually changing. Uh, you know, having people comment on the, the, the products that are featured are partly a result of what sells, what people like. Uh, you know, so, you know, lots and lots of people are, 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 are giving a product five stars. It's going to, you know, appear at the top of the listings. And this is this dynamic, wonderful business process. And it, it's not, you know, when people say, well, using marketplaces inside of companies, this isn't like, um, well, you know, yes, Accenture has done some really interesting work where they have built inside the company a, a jobs marketplace, you know, a little bit like Upwork for occasional. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's the, 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 you know, the small end of this. The big end is the entire company is infused with digital. You know, it is an application. Amazon, all the people in it, you know, are, are, part, are part of Amazon, not just the, you know, the app that you see. And so in some sense... You know, humans and machines are working together to deliver that service. It's all the way from, you know, not just the programmers and the editors who are editing the content of, of the site, but also the people in the in the warehouses, the people in the delivery drivers, uh, you know, are woven into this vast, you know, cybernetic, you know, cyborg organism. Yeah, we have a great quote. I, this is one of my favorite quotes in the book, and I, I I'm, it's. I think incredibly deep. You say, if you think with a 20th century factory mindset, you might believe that the tens of thousands of software engineers at companies like Google, Amazon, and Facebook spend their days grinding out products just like their industrial forebears. Only today they're producing software rather than physical goods. If instead you step back and view these companies with a 21st century mindset, you realize that a large part of what they do, delivering search results, news and information, social network status updates, relevant products for purchase, drivers on demand, is done by software programs and algorithms. These programs are workers, and the programmers who create them are their managers. Each day, these managers take in feedback about their workers' performance as measured in real-time data from the marketplace, and if necessary, they give feedback to the workers in the form of minor tweaks and updates to the program or the algorithm. Standing that on its end of quote, standing that on its head is just, I mean, that's a mind blowing, beautiful way to think about it. And it emphasized, I forget, long ago, an econ talk guest made this point that, you know, we're all just a giant focus group constantly uh, giving information to these products and they're being tweaked and improved and changed. Of course, maybe not always improved for our benefit, I think mostly, but we'll maybe at the end talk a little bit about whether we should be worried about this. But uh, the process is is a brand new phenomenon. It's an incredible phenomenon, and as you point out a number of times in the book, and as you just said, it, it's hard to talk about where the human and the technology start and end. They're just intertwined. They're augmenting each other. Yeah. Well, you pick a key word here, which is augmenting. Uh, yeah, you're. When right. I think it's a good word. When I think about, you know, the key, you know, I started wrestling with this question of, of income inequality and uh, how are we going to make a better world using technology? And, 
it really struck me that the key design pattern of technology is augmentation. You know, and, and I don't mean aug augmented reality, although that's going to be a, a pretty interesting set of new developments. But, you know, just as the, <clears throat> you know, technologies of the 18th, 19th and 20th century were about augmenting our muscles. Yeah. You know, and as from the 20th into the 21st century, we're really about augmenting our minds. And, you know, you augment in order to increase our capabilities, and, and, and that is the thing that, uh, again, I, I'm, you know, I, I kind of feel like I have this call to action, uh, you know, which is at the heart of the book, which is how do we use this technology? How do we, you know, get out of this narrow uh, idea that the only function of technology is uh, to, Im Im I guess, improve productivity in the, in the narrowest sense simply by doing the same thing more cheaply? You know, I, I talked with one investor who said, oh, I invested in a startup that will, uh, an AI startup that will get rid of 30% of call center jobs. And I said, you know, I, you know, I talked with Abby Johnson at Fidelity, and she wants to make her call centers work better. She doesn't want to <laughs> you know, get rid of, 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 uh, of, the, of the workers. She, you know, she wants to avoid the situation I was in where I was trying to transfer one of my, my, my wife's accounts uh, and I spent two hours on the phone, yeah. you know, and, and still didn't get the right information. You know, it's like, it's like, make it better, you know? And well, I, I think, th I think the best entrepreneurs do that, obviously. And the best the yeah, investors exactly. understand that if you eliminate 30% and give worse customer service, you're not going to be a very effective, uh, uh, right. innovation. Uh, but I'm going to come in the last part of our conversation. I want to talk about, uh, these issues of sharing the gains more widely and and what's going to happen to the jobs of the future. But I want to I want to add before we leave Amazon. I, first, I want to read. Apologize to listeners, but these are so interesting. I want to read one more little story about Amazon. Then I want to ask you a question. Um, quote: At an Amazon management offsite, Jeff Bezos once famously responded to a suggestion the company needed to improve communication between teams. No, communication's terrible. He said the reason can be explained by the old joke. One person sits and drinks. Two person clink and drink. The more people you add, the higher the ratio of clinking to drinking. What you want, said Bezos, is a situation where people clink only with the people doing shared work, not with everyone they touch. This is simple math. Communication gets worse as team size grows. Uh, that last part may have been you, not Bezos, but that's the point. And it just uh, – Yeah, yeah. Just to, be, just to be clear, the only part of that that's a quote from Jeff is, no, communication is terrible. <laughs> the, 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 the joke oh. and, and the rest is me explaining. Oh, that's just so that great, line. though. And it really – you know, this is crazy, but it reminds me of the uh, insight we've talked about here before on the program of, uh, of FedEx realizing that if you go to a hub, you need a lot fewer – uh, planes than if you go, have direct flights between every place you're going to deliver and, and pick up packages because you're going to need a lot more planes. It's the same clinking and drinking problem, uh, ironically or yeah, not. Yeah, although there is an interesting, there's a couple of interesting uh, counterpoints to that, and and one is uh, just in airlines, you know, the hub and spoke system, uh, you know, versus Southwest, which did do point to point, uh, continues to do point to point, and actually for a long time was the only profitable airline. Yep. Uh, and, and the second thing Good is point. one that, that I, I think is uh, because, again, they, they realized that serving an unserved market was uh, was a market opportunity rather than simply serving the major markets more cheaply. Yep. 
True. Uh, but um, there's another piece which I've been uh, chewing on, and, and it really has to do with how does uh, this new economy end up creating more jobs? And there was a great example I came across recently in Alexis Madrigal's uh, wonderful Containers podcast. He has a, an eight-part series about container shipping. And episode four, uh, he talks about the, the, the changing economics of coffee. Hmm. You know, because, of course, container shipping uh, led to this world in which um, you could take massive bulk products, uh, you know, load them into a container, ship it halfway across the world at very low cost. You got rid of all of the loading and unloading, you know, the longshoremen jobs, huge job losses that happened in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and now the jobs are coming back. Guess what? Because we've gone beyond commodity coffee back into this differentiated marketplace where people say, no, this is, this is single origin coffee from this particular region in, uh, you know, Guatemala or Honduras or, uh, you know, uh, Sri Lanka and, uh, and it's roasted by this particular roaster, you know, in Emeryville, California. And so what happens is container comes into the port, uh, but then all these containers have to go to this new distribution center where they get unloaded because, you know, uh, you know, Blue Mountain Coffee is getting, you know, you know, a certain amount of coffee from 15 or 20 different individual growers somewhere else around the world. So you've ended up re putting labor back into the process because we have also added in to coffee the idea and the experience, the aesthetics of uniqueness. Yeah. And that's one of the things that runs as a theme through the book is this wonderful idea that Clayton Christensen uh, put out in 2004 as the law of conservation of attractive profits. And I saw it in the software industry, and I won't go into where I saw that there, but I see that as the key to the next economy. Because as, things, as one thing becomes a commodity, something else becomes valuable. So coffee was commoditized all the way down to those five-pound cans. And then the second wave of coffee was, well, we're going to differentiate and we're going to have better coffee and unique roasts. And we saw the rise of people like Starbucks. And now you see all these specialty coffees that people pay more for. And people pay more for – here food is this massive commodity. And people pay for the admixture of human aesthetics. And even in a world of, of robotics and AI, I think that can be the key to a future economy of prosperity because it's ultimately about us sharing stuff with each other and persuading each other that the stuff we share is worth having. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. Um, before we leave Amazon, I, I want to – I want you to teach me something, uh, which I got a glimpse of in the book, which I think most of us don't have any idea about. So you talked about how their cloud service, AWS, Amazon Web Services or Servers? What's the S? Services. Services. How that you know initiated the cloud revolution. Well, for, for me, naively, until I read your book, I always thought, well, yeah, I have the, I'm into the cloud. I use Dropbox to save my photographs, and I keep documents there, and – it's nice to have a backup, and that's really great. And I have no idea, you know, where those servers are that are storing all that stuff. I assume they're out in some place remote with a lot of air conditioning, uh, keeping them cool. And you point out that th that's not what I mean. Amazon, you said, makes Netflix possible. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So talk about that, and then finally, if you, if you, if you can remember, talk about whether Amazon's 
going to be profitable in its current form because the recent numbers I saw, they're making a lot of money, but it's all from AWS. They're just kind of limping along, barely breaking even on this unbelievably large retail presence. Yeah. Um, well, a couple, a couple of things. Um, like um, uh, Amazon has built, has continued to invest in the future. And yes, they did yes, become the AWS company in some ways that it's become the most profitable part of their business. Retail in general is not that profitable, right? So I, I don't think that saying that but Amazon... You can't make it up on volume if you're losing money. So no, they're, they're kind of they're, trying they're, to do that, it looks like. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, they, they're basically, uh, they're, they're holding it together pretty well. But, but let me come back to, to your question about AWS. Yes, actually Dropbox uh, was originally... Uh, built on top of Amazon Web Services. Netflix uses Amazon Web Services to deliver its service. So again, this is this internet operating system I, I've been talking about for the last you know twenty years. You know, uh, just like the PC has this platform of uh, of Windows. You know, AWS really became the platform on which you know tens of thousands of startups built their services. And, uh, and of course, there's now competing clouds, Google Cloud, uh, Microsoft Azure, uh, and you can instill, you know, if you're a big enough company, you can do it yourself, but you don't have to. I think, for example, Dropbox uh, has now, uh, you know, internalized their own storage platform because they, they're big enough to do that. But, you know, the enabling technologies, the platform technologies are key to the advances of civilization. You know, when you think about... Uh, uh, you know, an economy in general, you know, roads were a platform technology, you know, electricity is a platform technology, you know, uh, you know, running water is a platform technology, garbage collection is a, is a platform technology. We even use the term garbage collection in, com- in, in computer programming, you know, it's part of what operating systems do, you know, they get rid of all the, you know, uh, you know, re- 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 you know uh, uh, you know, stuff that gets left around by badly performing programs, you know, and so, uh, anyway, Amazon has built a, a, you know this amazing you know business layer there, uh, created this new market. But I think that they uh, uh, continue uh, you know their 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 growth in retail. I think is is still actually an incredibly powerful part of who they are as a business. I wouldn't think of them as well. They're really just the AWS company. Hey, let's talk about the future um, and the worries a lot of people have. You've you give some examples in the book, more than one of how, and just gave another of how employment often expands uh, unexpectedly. It, that is the history of humanity, literally. It's we, uh, as you point out, I think in, very early in the book, uh, jobs, the work doesn't disappear. The jobs do, but the people don't die. They go off and they can do the new work that's still out there. There's new things to do when technology and tools advance. That's been the history of humanity, but some people worry not unreasonably, that maybe this is different. Maybe this is – it's one thing to augment muscles with machinery, but augmenting brains with uh, artificial intelligence uh, may limit what many people can do productively to serve each other, which is what a good economy does. So one of the things, obviously, is education to help us uh, make that work better. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on education and just in general – what do you think needs to be done that won't take care of itself? I'm a tend to believe in the power of things taking care of themselves, but uh, this may be different. Uh, we'll find out. 
But what are your thoughts on what we can do explicitly and directly to try to uh, help people cope with these changes? Well, uh, first off, education is has always been central to progress. Uh, and I, I, a wonderful quote from uh, Robert Putnam, uh, the author of Bowling Alone and many other books. Uh, but yeah, I was in this uh, Markle uh, sort of multi-year uh, process uh, called Rework America, and and Bob Putnam said he said all of the advances in our civilization have come when we have invested in other people's children. And he kind of went through, you know, you know, universal grade school education, universal high school education, you know, the GI Bill. And each of them led to actually a more productive economy. So education is a huge uh, lever for making the world a better place. Um, and the problem we have is that we have a sclerotic education system, you know, where we're still, you know, despite all the changes, uh, thinking, first of all, that you get done with it. You know, whereas, in right. fact, you, you have to keep, you know, you know, con, you know, continuous education is the world of the future. Uh, the kinds of things that you have to teach are very, very different and, the, and they change very, very slowly, you know, because, of course, we now have all these cognitive enhancements, you know, and we're still effectively, uh, you know, teaching people, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, this analogy, you know, and, you know, we, we, we're doing the equivalent of teaching people how to, uh, you know, uh, drive a plow, you know, uh, push a plow uh, you know, when, you know, in, in a lot of the things we teach. You know, because the skills that are really needed today are very different when, you know, computers can remember things for us very easily, when they can do math, you know, arithmetic for us very easily. Uh, we need to know and approach subjects very differently, and we need to approach them through a task orientation. You know, so, for example, uh, uh, you, know, in, you know, a very useful course would be how do you survey the media landscape and figure out what's true and what's not? That would be far more useful than many of the things that are taught in, in grade school. I just read a wonderful account of a teacher who's doing that, you know. Uh, but uh, so there's that kind of thing, but also just this idea of continuous education, on-demand education. We're going to get to a point that's not that dissimilar from um, that fanciful scene in The Matrix where Trinity says, you know, I need to know how to fly a helicopter, and it downloads into her brain, you know, and then, you know, uh, you know, I watch my teenage stepdaughter, you know, figure out how to do things. She goes and looks it up on YouTube and, you know, done. She, she's figured out how to make something or do something that she didn't know before. And our she kids, knows that, our kids do that knows, effortlessly. Right, I, they know that on demand learning is the way that you learn. And so the question is, how do we teach kids, you know, and give them access to the right kinds of skills and the right kind of knowledge of what's available out there? Um, so you know, a lot of that comes natural to them, obviously, like the one example you just gave, I, I was gonna say your, our, our kids do that effortlessly. I do it when I'm up against a, a stone wall. I couldn't get my toilet seat off. I'm changing out a toilet seat and I thought, oh, I'll just look it up on Google, on YouTube. And of course there were 10 good ideas I hadn't thought of for how to get my toilet seat. And my dad, he just, who's 87, he just calls me and says, do you know such and such? And I'll say, well, I don't, but you could look it up on Google. And sometimes I wonder I, I like to think he just likes to call me, but um, it, it could be he didn't think of Google because he does say it seems to be actual surprise. Oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, there is a real challenge uh, for, for the idea of formal, what we're going to do with formal education, how much we need and what should be taking place in it. And our current system is remarkably um, 
unflexible and trying to help us figure out what that might end up looking like, it's, uh, I think, a real problem. Yeah, and I think it's sort of interesting because if you actually think about uh, how education would best happen, uh, I think we could get away from the regimented schooling entirely. Yeah. And, and I, I, it's sort of interesting because I, I have a, a large uh, Catholic family, many of whom uh, whose you know, next generation were homeschooled. And, uh, you know, there's this community, uh, you know, of my brothers and sisters live close together. They have lots of other friends with large families. And they homeschooled because, you know, my sister says, well, I, I'll teach biology. And somebody says, well, I'll teach math. Somebody says, I'll teach English. They, they have enough kids in the neighborhood that they put on a Shakespeare play every summer, uh, actually two sometimes one summer with, you know, making the sets, uh, learning the lines, doing, you know, making the costumes, you know, and they actually spent, you know, my observation was that they spent less time educating their kids than I spent with my kids on homework, <laughs> you know, and the kids came out fine. They ended up going to college, uh, you know, getting good jobs. And, and so there's a whole, you know, question of, you know, we assume that the way we've been doing it is the only way to do it. And, uh, you know, here's this this thing that's so interesting is that there's so many areas uh, where uh, if if we gave people a different mental model of how to do things and we figured out market mechanisms so people could get paid, or it might be that the market fails and we need, you know, a different, you know, a different way of funding it. Because, of course, we fund education publicly. We don't make everybody do it themselves. Um, Slightly expensive, too, both yeah, K through 16. <laughs> yeah. What would happen if we just blew that up and said we're going to do it very, very differently or figured out, well, where are the experiments that, uh, you know, we could support yeah, I have, three, because, I have four kids. Three of them are either out of college or in college. The fourth is a senior in high school, and I a part of me wants them not to go to college, but it's yeah. really hard to – it feels risky. Uh, it is risky, obviously. But, yeah. Uh, well, again, when I think about my own life, I you know I, I went to Harvard and I got a degree in classics, and it's, it's certainly been a wonderful gift to me to, to have done that, but everything in my professional life – I learned after college yeah. by, by doing it. And, and that's part of what my own business is really about, you know, creating, you know, learning resources for, for people who teach themselves the things that you knew. You know, we publish books, we've run, you know, conferences, we have a, an online learning platform called Safari, uh, which is, you know, tens of thousands of eBooks, training videos, uh, live online training. Because basically we realize that in, in our, my universe of computer, people have to learn new skills all the time. All the time. Let me ask you a different question about the future, which um, is on people's minds. In the economics version of this, people are worried about profit margins. They seem large. Um, I'm not sure that's the case, but they seem large. And one way you get larger profit margins is monopoly or less competitive uh, force from your your neighbors, uh, your competitors – We are in a world right now where, at least right now, there seems to be one really good search engine. There's a couple places you can get a driver, uh, you can call a car on demand, Uber and Lyft. There are a few others also, Via, I know of. But that might end up being one. And, you know, we're talking about the fact that they're investing large amounts of money to get that thick market 
going. And so there might be one survivor of that. There's one really big social media place called Facebook. There's a lot of smaller ones, Instagram and Twitter and other places too. But Facebook's really increasingly becoming where people had become. Now it's, you know, obviously it's in question. But there is some worry that these very large companies are going to have an inordinate amount of power over us as you know, recently was in the news, a think tank that's funded by Google, did some things that maybe made Google happy that don't look so good. Um, yeah. are, are you, and then we have the, the Google memo, uh, James Damore, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Part of me says it's a private company. They, should, they can do whatever they want, none of my business even. Part of me says um, they're really getting kind of hard to say no to. You know, my usual answer to this is, if you don't like them, don't use them. Use DuckDuckGo. Use a different email service. You know, there are many. There are still alternatives. But are these companies too powerful? Um, is it something you're worried about? So I have a somewhat different view. First of all, I believe that many of these digital platforms do have a tendency towards natural monopoly. There's network effects that you know, make it just simply better for everybody to be using the same one. Now, the, the, the question ultimately may be, should they be regulated monopolies uh, or not? But more urgently, you know, my advice to them is uh, make sure that it works for your marketplace. And, you know, if you think about these things as marketplaces, uh, you know, and not just right now, too often I think these companies think, well, we have customers, but they don't also think, well, we also have suppliers, you know, because all of the people who are creating content on the Internet, for example, are Google's suppliers as well as their customers. And if you, if you realize that it's a marketplace that you have to make work for both sides, uh, you know, this, uh, the, you, then you kind of invest in that ecosystem. And instead, what I see is this pattern that, you know, Microsoft, so show, uh, IBM showed first in the computer industry and then Microsoft, which is as they became more powerful, they tried to take more and more of the market for themselves, not realizing that that's a short-sighted behavior because if people can't make a living in your marketplace, they go somewhere else. And so, you know, there's a self-interest. Uh, Walt Mossberg once said to me, and I, I can't believe I didn't put this quote in the book. He said I, he was recounting a conversation he had with Steve Ballmer uh, when he was CEO of Microsoft. And he said, Steve, if you guys uh, would just dial back the greed only 5%, <laughs> you know, people would like you 100% more. And, and, and I think that, that uh, you know, Google's right at that point where the, you know, the market is going to turn on them. And I think that the, the myth that it's good enough, you know, that it, if, if, you're, if you're helping customers, that's all you have to worry about is part of it. But an even more pernicious myth, I think, in our economy is that if it's good for shareholders, then you don't have to worry about all the rest of it. Uh, because, in fact, you really do have to look at an economy as an ecosystem. And when you have a monoculture where, you know, one company becomes too powerful and they forget that when they're that ubiquitous, they actually have to be an enabler for everybody else, as opposed to simply you're no longer just a player in the market trying to get as much as you can. You are the market. And so therefore, you have to actually you know, keep a level playing field. You have to make 
opportunity for others uh, and you can't take it all, uh, you know, that's critical. And, and for me, the biggest offender in that list is not Google or Facebook or Amazon. It's our financial markets. You know, we're literally, I remember there was this, uh, I forget who made the statement. It was somebody at JP Morgan, you know, after American Airlines was going to give a raise to their employees. And it was like, they, they can't do that. You know, it's like, you know, they're robbing the shareholders. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. You know, the amount of, of the productivity gains that have gone to, uh, you know, Wall Street, you know, to the, the, the corporate shareholder, the shareholders, you know, and not to, you know, the people who are working in all these companies you know, as a result of this sort of idea that somehow, you know, I, I refer in the book, I said, you know, we, we, we laugh at the, the idea that the, the, the kings had this divine right to own things. And now we have this divine right of capital. And we're going to look back on that and go, no, you know, you know, this is an economy should be for everyone. And, and when you have one particular group that says, I'm going to take it all for myself. And, and you know, the first of all, it eventually falls down. You have a revolution. You have, uh, you know, social unrest. Uh, and it's, it's sort of short-sighted behavior. And so we actually have to actually understand uh, that great companies, uh, you know, that become platforms for the rest of society have a responsibility for those that depend on them. Yeah, the problem is, and your, your opening remark, on this topic illustrates that the problem is it's evidently hard to do. You mentioned IBM, then Microsoft, and I think Google's next, where it just um, doesn't come. When you, here, here's the problem. When you don't have competitors, it's very hard to keep focused on uh, doing a good job. And you get a little more focused on getting bigger. And um, well, well, yes and no, but you, you do have competitors. You just don't see you them. You don't and see them. I think, Correct. Yeah, that's part, part of the reason why it's so important to take the long view. Yeah, Microsoft did have a set of competitors. They were all the people who they had disenfranchised. And believe me, if Google ends up uh, disenfranchising too many people, they're going to breed the next generation of competitors. My guest today has been Tim O'Reilly. Tim, thanks for being part of EconTalk. I love it. You are such a great interviewer. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>